Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. On today's episode of Third Act, I talk with Maria Garcia Nielsen, the Intentional International Board Director. If you're looking to get a board seat or more involved in executive networking, then let me tell you, this is the episode for you. Maria was born in Peru as the youngest of six children. Early in her life, her mother instilled a strong need for education. The family eventually moved to New York City, and through Maria's hard work and the very influential sister Mary Jo, she earned a scholarship to Cornell and then to Wharton for her MBA. Maria went on to a stellar career, eventually becoming the CEO of Office Depot in Spain and Portugal. As she thought about her next act, Maria created an Excel spreadsheet, something I bet we can all relate to, to map out how she would spend her time with a goal of owning more of it for herself. That spreadsheet guided her pursuit of what she's doing in her third act, international for-profit and not-for-profit boards, leading and mentoring women, and giving back her gift of education through her work at Cornell and Wharton. Good morning, Maria, and welcome to the Third Act Podcast. How are you? Fine. Thank you for having me as your guest, Liz. And where do I find you today? In Madrid, Spain. Oh, my gosh. The last time we talked, you were in New York. So you live in two countries, correct? And and how's that worked out during the pandemic? Well, that was my plan. So my plan in 2017 was to have a portfolio of boards in Europe. And in the East Coast, so that I would, you know, take the flight, six-hour flight, direct flights, very easy between Madrid and New York City. Um, I was able to do that for the latter part of 18, 2018 and 2019. So, you know, my planning worked. <laughs> However, um, you know, <laughs> until last year, right? Yes. Yeah. Fortunately, we're we're still flexible, right? And and I think you know that was probably you know a simpler problem to manage. So I did you know, to confine my family here in Madrid where we have more space and, and we felt that we were a bit safer and, and had lots of green space around us. But once I started traveling again, it just felt wonderful to be able to move. I have to say, though, I love Madrid. So if I had a chance, I mean, I have a beautiful place to quarantine, but that would also be a great place to go as well. So but let's start You're, I mean, you have an international background, but you're actually from Peru, youngest of six children. What was it like growing up in Peru? Yes, I am from Peru. I was born in Lima and my parents are from a little tiny town called Cañete, two hours south of Lima. And they were married really young. My mother had four kids, four children by the time she was 20. So they were still young and the youngest of that, you know, first lot requested that my parents have a little brother or a little sister. My parents accommodated the request. So my sister was born. <laughs> oh, and that was pretty nice of them. Okay. Yes. And five years later, I was an accident. So I grew up thinking that I was this, you know, accidental child in this wonderful family because, you know, it was just great to grow up with so many adults around us, you know, my sister and I paying attention to us and loving us. So I moved from Peru when I was 11. So I, you know, all of my primary education took place in Lima and and it was an eventful place to grow up, right? I, you know, lived through a major earthquake that completely destroyed our, our home and our school. So we had no school for like four months. So that's how I remember the earthquake. 
we also had a military takeover during those years because we left early 70s. But I remember it as, you know, as children remember loving childhoods, right? Uh, serene, going to the beach, you know, wonderful. Does your whole family end up in New York City? Yes, it took us 10 years, right? So it does. it's not like you pick up and move. First, the older brothers and sisters were there. Then my brother were there. As I said, you know, we're a very close-knit family, and I think that's helped us so much. But similar to many immigrant families. So, you know, you pull all your resources together and you help each other out. And I don't think my mother, you know, I, I think my father was, of course, involved. But I think I remember this whole planning and idea as my mother really egging us on and, and telling us that we should follow and, and how lucky we were to have this opportunity. That That's the signaling that I received. So I was the youngest. I was only 11. So my transition was so much simpler. Um, all I had to do was go to school. I would have had to go to school in Peru and I went to school in New York City. Now, your mother was really strong on education and instilled that in you. So you ended up doing well in school and going on to Cornell. How did that all transpire? Yes. As I said, I was 11, went to Catholic school. So once again, that pooling of resources made a huge difference. I don't recall who paid for my schooling, right? So the way our family worked is that my mother would sort of set the plan and everybody would comply, which is very different for us from how I now run my family. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to say, I don't think that happens at my house. For sure it doesn't. Exactly. So, you know, I have to be so grateful, right, for, for all that, that manner of just accepting and being the beneficiary of all, you know, all those hopes. So I was sent to Catholic school and I went to high school in the city in a small school, Dominican Academy, very small school on 68th between Park and Madison. So wonderful to be able to leave Queens every day and go into Manhattan. You know, it just opens up so many ideas and creativity and, and wonderful friends there. And one of the teachers, her sister Mary Jo, she was our physics teacher, she found out about a minority program in engineering because I was really good at, you know, math and physics and told my parents that I could enroll in a program at Cornell the summer between junior and senior year. So I spent maybe probably a week, but it was so impactful um, up in Ithaca, New York, with minority, I guess, high schoolers that were interested in engineering. They told us all about engineering, but also told us about how to apply. And this is back when this is all paper-based, right? So, you know, they told us, get a typewriter, you know, don't do it by hand. This is how you do your recommendations. You know, all of that prepping, which we were getting a lot of that in high school as well. But it was just so tailored to Cornell, obviously, to engineering. And from my recollection, the most impactful thing is that they really cared about us. They understood that, you know, we didn't have the benefit of, of parents and grandparents or, you know, extended family having attended college, right? So they realized that all of this was new and they gave us information. I remember coming back with so much paperwork for my parents to explain to them why this was a great opportunity. You end up at Cornell. What degree do you get and uh, what did you think you were going to do when you got out? I did go for engineering. So I followed the advice of Sister Mary Jo, you know, physics and math. I went for engineering. I wanted to be a professional. So I 
have to look back and in hindsight, I was not a vocational engineer, right? I, I think I followed the, the simplest path because of my academic results. And the other thing is that I received a full scholarship. So, you know, Cornell is, a, is just a wonderful place to, to attend because you have all of the colleges, all of the different learning. But it wasn't until junior or senior year when I was really thinking of what to do next. So I ended up interviewing for consumer goods companies that were looking for engineers for their manufacturing facilities. So I interviewed with General Mills and with Kraft Foods, Procter & Gamble. That made sense to me, right? Because that was familiar. I, I could understand. I could be engaged. And I ended up working with Hershey, Hershey Foods with chocolate kisses and okay yeah of course you know it's interesting you would say that because I'm also an engineer and I interviewed I'm an aerospace engineer and I remember going not to Boeing but to like McDonnell Douglas and a bunch of the aerospace companies and I was just like I don't want to do this it was like all men I was going to design a screw I'm thinking "Eh, this isn't for me which is how I ended up in consulting so you go to Hershey's and eventually you do you go, you work for a while and then go to, to Wharton to get an MBA? Do I have the, the timeline correct? Yes, that's correct. I did, once again, the standard path. I had heard it through career counseling at Cornell that many of you know people with engineering degrees work for two years and then pursue an MBA. So I, I had that in the back of my mind when I went to Hershey. And once again, at Hershey, I had a wonderful experience with just everybody around was so supportive. And you know, I was one of the first Latinos to be hired into R&D. At one point, there was an opportunity for me to work in a manufacturing plant for YNS candies that they made licorice, you know, they made Twizzlers. <laughs> and, um, and I put up my hand, I was able to work shifts with the maintenance department as part of my engineering onboarding and the plant manager there and the engineering, I guess, manager would have been, they were the ones that really encouraged me to look into an MBA because I wanted to be a plant manager. I, I respected this plant manager so much. He would you know, pull us together in the mornings and tell us about the plants. And at that point, we were doing total quality control, you know, all, all of these management ideas how they treated the employees, how they thought it was so crucial that I spoke Spanish so that I should leverage that to talk to the plant employees. All of that really seems so interesting, much more interesting than just the engineering work that I was doing. And so they were very supportive, as I said, and they they wrote my letters of recommendations and, and so on. And I ended up applying to Wharton. And once again, uh, through General Foods, I received the full scholarship. Did General Foods then expect you to come work for them after you graduated from from Wharton? No, um, they did it, it. Just a separate scholarship. Okay. Yes. And they did expect the summer program. So I did my summer internship with them. I actually did Hispanic marketing for their Jell-O brand. Um, oh, my in God. My place. <laughs> that must have yes. been fun. Interesting. Interesting fun. target marketing. really fun. Completely. And it was very incipient. You know, that idea that you had to market differently to Hispanics. What language do you use and how do you 
do you use Spanglish or not? Do you support the, you know, Puerto Rican parade? So I was also very surprised at that, but it made so much sense because we were, my family was the target group. So I would just go back home and ask all these questions. My parents <laughs> would watch the programs that we were talking about at, at work. So it was a learning experience, but wonderful. I mean, see how, and to see how that has evolved. After you get your MBA, you somehow you end up in Spain working. Where did you go then? And how did that happen? Yes. So, you know, I, I did engineering, so I wasn't able to do the typical exchange program that a lot of undergraduates do. So I wanted to at least explore whether through Wharton I would be able to do an exchange program because in engineering you would miss. You couldn't really take off that easily, I thought. My sister, one of my, you know, that sister that's only five years older than I me, mean, she had gone to Seville and she told me, oh, my God, you know, this is wonderful. This is like Peru. People dance in the streets because she had gone to the Seville Fair, right, With where people do dance in the streets. And I thought, oh, my God, I want to do that. Um, so I luckily, and, and this is serendipity, the day we had spoken on the phone, I see a sign up in, you know, one of the corporates on the walls that Wharton had an exchange program with ESA in Barcelona, so I oh. just pictured myself doing my MBA, dancing in the streets, and you know, <laughs> dream fulfilled. And so I applied, I was accepted, and I did my third semester. So it's, you know, typical two-year program. I did the third semester in Barcelona. Uh, another one of my favorite cities. So did you end up dancing in the streets while you were there? No, you know, and, and this is also you know, a lesson to learn. So I expected dancing in the streets and, you know, my sister had gone to Seville, south of Spain, where it doesn't get cold. So I only brought like all the summer clothes and Barcelona does have a winter season. (laughs) So um, it wasn't wasn't the same experience, but once again, you know, it, it was the year, so this is prior to Spain joining the EU, prior to the Olympic Games. So there was just so much optimism and hope. Everybody was just so excited about Spain's transitioning that there was so much energy and, and you know, plans. And, and it's just fun. I mean, that still remains. Do you end up then, after you graduate, you start your career in Spain? Is that correct? And how does that transpire? When I graduated from Wharton, I actually wanted to do operations research. So I still had that engineering management. I still wanted to be a plant manager. That was you know, very present in, in how I approach my search. However, McKinsey Iberia came to recruit at Wharton and they called me out. So I, they were not my target, you know, the Baines and BCGs. Those, those were not in my target list for the U.S., But because they contacted me, they were actually interviewing. They said, you know, would you come talk to us? That was really what connected me to Spain professionally. The office was growing. They wanted Spanish speakers. They wanted Ivy League graduates. So everything just fit. And it was wonderful. In the meantime, my roommate, so, you know, when I did the exchange, my roommate was this Danish student from Denmark, literally after his um, university, also getting his degree in ESA in Barcelona. And we started going out. 
So, you know, that was also part of the, you know, should we try this? And if we want to try this, we should probably be in the same continent. I'm going to fast forward sir, through sort of your second act because you had a great career in different companies in Spain. Your last job, though, is with Office Depot, where you're the CEO of the Portugal, Spain, and then you retire in 2017. And so what was your thinking at that point and, and why did you decide to retire then? Yes. So Office Depot had reached out to me because they were having tons of trouble with the model. I think this is, you know, it's still going on. It's a challenge to be in retail in, you know, those big boxes and, and that format today. But the subsidiary was financially, it was presenting, you know, a big challenge for the European management. And so one of the things that they were looking to do was to explore whether they should just close the subsidiary or prepare it for a possible exit at some point, either through private equity or through sales, because, you know, everything was on the table with the model. And we were just coming out of the financial crisis. And when I was approached, I had such a clear vision on how to turn this subsidiary financially, because I had just done something very similar in my prior um, job, and that's how I came to know them. And having worked for multinationals, you know that the hierarchies, the complexities, those, you know, all of those levels of decision-making make everything so slow, not as transparent as it should be, and definitely not efficient. And so up until then, they hadn't had somebody that could at least be close and negotiate on, you know, Iberia's behalf at headquarters because they had all these layers of European managers what I ask for is I'm ready to take on this challenge, but give me some leeway so that I can work directly through headquarters rather than go through Southern Europe, then EMEA, and then US. They had nothing to lose. So they gave me you know, leeway. We turned this around much faster than they expected. Didn't have to close it, right? That, that, that was you know one of the, the great stories out of that. The second thing is that Maybe two years into the role, HR calls me from headquarters to talk. And I thought we were going to talk about the typical issues of, you know, costs and, you know, different programs or, or whatever. And they asked me, what do you want? How do you see your career? And that was so refreshing. And I have to be so grateful for Office Depot for that because they actually, you know, asked me to think about myself, about where I would be next. I didn't see myself having been fighting this hierarchical structure going up to another European country or to the U.S. That was not really in, in my head. And so it was in those conversations that the idea of boards came up, the idea of perhaps looking at these other activities complementary because they wanted to make sure that I was still engaged. You know, after the financial turnaround in, in the subsidiary, I could either grow and move or I could wait there until the plans for, you know, after the merger with Office Max, after the potential merger with Staples, until all of that was settled. They did want to retain me. 
And so one of the things they offer was, you know, let's look into training. And so part of it was, let's look into training that could also open up your eyes as to your next phase. And that's how the idea of boards came up and we pursued. And so for maybe three years within Office Depot, every perk that I could negotiate was always geared towards more training. So I did my you know, certificate, my NACD, all of that I did while I was still at Office Depot. Oh, that's a great idea. Probably some advice to our listeners as well as you think about your exit to try and negotiate as many of those perks as possible. Yes. And for example, they, you know, they introduced me to all of the board members at Office Depot at that time. So whenever I went to headquarters, I made time to speak to the board. You know, that that was just wonderful, right? So it was not the typical presentation on, you know, Spain's results, but it was just, you know, coffee, lunch, just to talk to board members. And that was very special. One of the things when I was talking to you earlier, sort of prepping for this is, I just love this part of your story, is that you're, you're really diligent about how you planned your next phase, which I like to call the vocational freedom phase, right? That when you have the time, talent, and treasure to do what you want. And you said you made a spreadsheet to figure it out. Can you talk us through that spreadsheet? And we may have to post it because I have a feeling some people might want to replicate it. Yes. I mean, that is part of how I am. You know, I, I think in looking back when, when I f- we were first married, I used Lotus 123 to plan my children, you know, to say, okay, I, I do want to keep working. So I want three years because that would allow me to have maternity leave, to be, you know, motherhood, you know. So all of, you know, these ideas of spreadsheets and ledgers have been in my life for a long time. I did the same thing with boards uh, because, you know, all those reports, you know, I think Spencer Stewart puts out a report on how the hours of board directors is increasing. So you have the data. And I wanted to make sure that some of the things that I wanted to pursue were already time stamped in there. I didn't want to just follow whatever came my way just because I was either bored or I had the energy or I had the freedom. So I sat down. I wanted to not be overboarded, which was another concept that you come across when you're looking at boards. And so I thought, what do I want to do with my own life? So it's part of that introspection as well, right? What do I want to do with this newfound freedom? My children are, you know, finished college. I, I don't have my 12 or 15 hour job really calling all, you know, my attention. And one of the things that I wanted to do is make sure that I secure giving back. I wanted to make sure that my, I didn't know then, but, you know, something, whether it was service, whether it was a nonprofit or whether it was part of, you know, uh, some sort of volunteering. So that's what I secured first in that spreadsheet. I wanted to give back to Cornell. That's in my heart. I think it changed my life. So that was one of the first things I did is how can I have impact in board level or, you know, council level as they are so open to engage alumni to keep on giving back to the school. Not financially, they, they really are, you know, very open and explicit about we want your time, your talent, your enthusiasm. So that's one of the first things I secured. 
I then wanted to have time both in the U.S. and in Spain. And so I jotted down, you know, the potential boards, two boards in Spain, two boards in New York or U.S. East Coast. And I wanted to work out what that's that, does that look like? You know, so I took the average number of hours, then I multiplied by four <laughs> to say, okay, what does that time commitment look like? Can I then include travel so that I can be in two, two continents? And I think that was very refreshing for me to understand, right? Because one thing is that you think, oh, you know, I want to have this amazing life, but then you have to drill down and say, okay, can I, does that meet the type of lifestyle I want to have? Does that meet what my financial planning needs to be at this point in my life? Where am I in all sorts of aspects? And also, you know, I did this Coursera course on, it's called Better Leaders, Better Managers or something like that by a professor at Wharton. And they talked about four spheres and there are many approaches to this, right? How are you personally? How are you professionally? How are you with your community? How are you with your personal life? And my, I remember doing that in maybe 2015 and then I did it um, a year ago. And one of the outcomes of that, you know, when you try to think, you know, where are you spending your energy and your talents and your life and your daily activities, I wanted to have more community service, right? I wanted to have more time on me, on self-growth. And so board work allows for that, right? Because that, you know, if I'm doing board work for nonprofits, is really addressing that community aspect. Boards are definitely a learning opportunity, right? I'm just re-energized by all of the things that I have to learn about with my boards, what's going on with stakeholder capitalism. You know, it's not just putting your experience to work for the service of your boards. It's really rolling up your sleeves and continue to learn. And that's so exciting. I know you've pursued a lot of different resources to either for learning or to help you get on boards like NACD. And I think you told me you did, was it PwC that did a course in Europe? Was that PwC that I you did. took the board? Yeah. Yep. So you're in the Athena Alliance. As you think about all of those resources, which ones did you find sort of to be the most valuable? That's a really hard question. I, one of the things that was more transformational, perhaps, was that I did use some of my perks, as I said, while I was at Office Depot, to attend a certificate course. So one of the executive programs at Harvard, Harvard Business School, has four or five programs. And I attended Making Boards More Effective in July, you know, in the summer of, I think this must have been 2016. And they told me about it, the professors or people in the admin department there at HBS told me about this program they were launching for the first time called Women on Boards in November. And I said, oh, you know, I, I really can't ask Office Depot. I, I feel bad. And I was actually, I received a scholarship that was part, you know, partially funded for to attend once again, another corporate course at HBS in November 2016. What was transformational about that, it was an all-women course. 
so the content, you know, as always is very, you know, interesting and, and uh, amazing. But the network that we created with the women in that cohort is and continues to be transformational. So what we did, we one woman took it up on herself to keep us connected and she would organize by every two weeks, we would get on a call and just share with each other that the search firms were not calling us you know, um, after completing our course. And that in the end, we were just surprised at the obstacles at perhaps our, you know, how slow we were to get our board bios done. You know, we just had so much to share. In the end, that network, that friendship turned into a 501c6. I became very engaged. It's called Women XX on Boards. Uh, I was president for two years. I'm now the chair of the board of, of that entity. Um, and it was sort of putting my own journey in the middle of that, but expanding it not only to benefit me, but all the women in the network. And we were all the same. So it wasn't that I was just, you know, being the you know, sacrificial person that was doing this on behalf of the rest. We were all like that. And there are many initiatives like that, right? But because we were part of, you know, the, that founding team of, of that initial idea, uh, of that way of sharing and helping each other out, um, that has been very important because of the networking effect that everybody tells you about and you have to structure in order for that to be effective. That's how I also became part of Athena because we uh, reached an alliance with Athena that and you know how Coco is so generous as well, right? So one of our members had joined Athena. Uh, she put us in contact with Coco. And, and so, you know, our two associations, are, you know, our two uh, entities are, are now sort of related, right? And, and I think that's also the way we're seeing so many initiatives become so collaborative, right? It, it's, it's a space, I think, where people are looking out to help each other, you know, make a difference on, on diversity in the boardroom. You're currently on a couple commercial boards in Europe. It's still working on getting your U.S. boards. As, as our listeners think about getting onto an international board, they have an interest in that. I mean, what, what are the considerations, aside from the travel and language, and international work experience, so sort of the obvious ones. What other considerations should people be thinking about if they're interested in an international board? Yes, I think with everything, I think diversity always, it's such a positive effect, right? And so the idea of having the U.S. perspective on a, an international board is so important. And that's usually part of the specs, right? Uh, you know, when when corporations where boards, uh, the NOMGov is looking at, you know, what is, what does our board matrix look like? What are we missing? Where could we benefit? You know, that may be one of the things that um, that's required or, or has been identified. So I think, you know, a lot of it is, does that business in its context, does it need your voice? Will it benefit from your experience? So that's, I think, the most important thing, right? Will you add value? The second thing is that I do think as I mentioned before, that this role of corporate board, you know, being independent directors requires learning, right? And, and I think that learning can come from all sorts of experiences, places, and definitely the international aspect is crucial 
in in how we approach businesses. I think no business can say, you know, we are just a local business and we're not impact. Even if you are thinking of supply chain, of what's happening with the commodities and metals, right? We're all connected. And so it's really impossible not to have that be a piece of value to bring to the table. I do think that, you know, besides the, the, the actual business model, the context and, you know, putting your experience to service a specific board, I do think that there's also lots to learn about the environment, right? What does diversity look like in the specific geography that you may be interested in? Where diversity now, you know, especially in the U.S., it's still gender, but it's so much more, right, with race and ethnics. And I think if you look at Spain, we're still in gender, right? That's still the issue. I think those experiences, you know, from different geographies that are tending to resolve or, or trying to resolve specific problems can also be so enriching because best practices can then be at least explored, right? It may not, you know, you can't just... Not everything is transferable, but I think that's also really important. In addition to your board work, you mentioned Cornell. And I know if I circle back, you've never really forgotten about the gift of education that you got from both Cornell and Wharton. So what else are you doing at Wharton? And how do you think about giving back that gift of education as as you think forward in your life? Yeah, so I placed both Cornell and Wharton really high up on on my, you know, the time and where I wanted to give back. So at Cornell, I'm part of this diversity council. It's the president's, we advise the president of Cornell on diversity and inclusion issues for students, for staff, and for um, academics. And it's a six-year mandate, and and that's been a wonderful experience. It's called PCCW. And it's women only. Then at Wharton, what happened was that I went back to my 30th reunion thinking that it was one more network that I had to tap into as I wanted to obtain a board in the U.S. And found that some of my friends were sort of in the same spot where I was. We were all, they weren't any further ahead than I was, even though they'd been in the U.S. for, you know, all these years. And so I just reached out to friends said, you know, would you mind connecting? Let's connect once a month and talk about this. And that uh, initiative, we started with eight people. Uh, Just by chance, you know, my friends were women or men of color. (laughs) It just seemed, you know, it just happened to be that way. I invited more people, but it just happened that way. And so we were very diverse um, in that initial group. And because of We've been committed. I've been committed. We've never missed a monthly call. Wharton has paid attention. They've been very supportive and they have, you know, come to give talks. Wharton has a wonderful initiative. They give free coaching to all alumni that, that want to get on board. So I've connected dots. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, we just had a session yesterday with the director of the alumni office and, you know, they have a Wharton book and they reach out to alumni to say, you know, hey, you know, we have these wonderful alums that are board ready. So that call that I started with eight people, we now have 350 people in our emailing list because the alumni office is also 
put out the word, you know, we were just featuring the alumni magazine. And so, you know, people have just by word of mouth contacted me to say, you know, can I get on this? And then people begin to raise their hand, right? And say, how can I help? And that just begins to become a virtuous cycle of activity and engagement. And so, you know, I'm having a wonderful time reconnecting with friends. I think boards also are part of you know, maybe the answer for a larger topic, right, as your podcast addresses is what's next. And so a lot of times when I connect with friends, I say, you know, just come to the session because some of it is just plain old networking. And, you know, we have people that are having or exploring different things and some of it may be resolved by a board. But, you know, maybe you come because you want to get on a corporate board, but really it's a nonprofit board that, gets you excited and, you know, that's what you want to do and focus on for the next, you know, number of years. So I think networks are amazing and and it's wonderful to see how generous people enrich each other's lives, right? So I think somebody has to be there to make it possible and feasible, but it's really individuals that put their best foot forward and, and get everything to happen. For the people who are listening who are interested in it, you're, you're involved in so many different things, but many of them are related to Cornell or Wharton or Harvard. Which of the groups that you're in are not affiliated with a group that you had to have gone to? So if I'm not a Harvard alum, I'm not a Wharton alum, what else do you do that you might recommend to our listeners that you found beneficial, aside from, of course, from the Athena Alliance, that's open to anybody who, who wants to join or apply? Some things I did that I found really useful. So when I first went to the U.S. to network for myself, I joined Women in the Boardroom with Sheila Ronning in the East Coast. That was very helpful because she's down to earth, very pragmatic, and she would always call me out saying, what are you doing for you? Because I would tell her, oh, so, you know, I connected all these people and my Wharton group is growing. And... You know, the Harvard group is getting a 501c6 and she would call me out. And I think that was very healthy to say, go back to your spreadsheet and think of how many of those things, um, you know, are, are conducive to your getting on a board because that's where you'll also have impact. And that, I, I found that really wonderful. So I was part of, um, you know, Women in the Boardroom and, and found Sheila to be, you know, a very I think, candid with me, which I needed. And it's not for everybody, but I need it. You know, I'm also part of Elevate Networks. I don't know if you know Elevate Networks. They also have a a cohort of women executive level that are exploring boards. And so we're also doing some programming there with Elevate Networks to at least make it available, right, to people to explore, to understand, you know, what is this opportunity for an executive level individual? And I, and so I also engage younger women, you know, um, to understand why corporate boards are important. It's obviously important to me because I'm, that's what I'm doing. But I, I recently shared in a, a, in a mixer with younger women that as citizens, as employees, as consumers, as investors for our pension plan or whatever, right? Corporate boards make such a difference in our lives because if the if we're concerned about the pay gap, 
if we're concerned about you know certain inequities, if we're concerned about you know supply chain not being as fair as, as it's possible, many of those decisions or at least conversations are taking place in the boardroom. And so I want to. It, I don't want everybody to be a corporate board member, but I think everybody should understand why it matters. Um, so Elevate is taking that approach. Uh, we will list these in the show notes, but these are good suggestions. So wrapping up here, I, I love to ask my guests the same question at the end, which is I thought about naming this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet, and you're clearly not done. So what aren't you done with yet? I would say learning. I mean, if I could... I would go back to school tomorrow. You know, if somebody said, you know, do you want to get another degree? I would. I am just so energized by all that we have to learn. My curiosity is now focused on blockchain technology and the <gasps> Mine too. DAOs because that distributed autonomous organization, I think it's also a reflection of failed governance on in corporations. So I'm really amazed by what's happening there. Yeah. MIT has some good classes on that. I took one. My son's very into blockchain and he's trading cryptocurrencies. And so I decided if I was going to be able to have a, a conversation with him at the dinner table, I better get smart on it. So it's been a lot of fun. Maria, thank you so much for your time and all your advice on how to become an intentional international board person. And uh, we look forward to continuing to hear about your journey. Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much for this podcast. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.